Hey, 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 it's me again, Ryan, your friendly neighborhood pastor. Great to be with you guys. Once again, two of our boys down with COVID. Uh, thankfully, they're doing okay. Appreciate your concern on that. But uh, best to stay home today and just instead come, for, come at you from the, from the media hub of the Oshlinger household, my teenage son Mason's bedroom. So that's where we're at right now. And that's where we're going to start as we consider God's word together this morning. So I want you to close your eyes. Close your eyes even now and imagine for a moment a celebration that was so full of joy, uh, goodness, and life that you just never wanted it to end. It might, it might be a party someone threw for you. It might be that season of time where you fell in love with someone or a sunset at Bodega Head or the last night of a missions trip where you're swapping stories around a fire or family trip or a game you went to with your father. Me, I, I'm considering, got a number of options, thankfully, but I'm considering the 2005 college basketball national championship game in St. Louis, Missouri, when I got to, after the game, celebrate with my favorite team and one of, one of my very dear friends. Or I'm considering picking my wedding weekend. I, sh I should mention these things are not in order of importance. <laughs> Just realizing that. Okay, nothing in order here. But my wedding weekend, specifically, as our wedding weekend uh, party in particular, testified to the power of Jesus-centered friendships. And it really made a huge impact on my family and friends who were gathered with us that weekend. It was just a really cool time to be together. But I think what I'm going to choose is the birthday party my parents threw for me in the fourth grade. Reason is that we were able to get access to my school's gym. And by access, I mean we had everything, the scoreboard, uh, all sporting equipment as well. So it was just an incredibly great time. Basketballs, footballs, baseballs, lacrosse sticks, high lie equipment, whatever high lie things are made out of. Whatever it was, it was this all-night festival of just sports and competition. And, and yeah, we spent from 5 p.m. to well past the night playing with 15 dudes. Didn't want it to end. Just a great time. And we went home, as did my other friends that night. When we got home, it was back to chores, to homework, and just... A general sense of loneliness. What we've been doing the last six weeks is taking a step back to look at God's big story from a big picture perspective. Look at it from a big picture perspective. Look at that story and the role that he has to offer us in it. The last act of that story is the best by far. That's the third act of the story, new. We've looked at good, bad, new, and perfect. In between, there's been some other moments to make six total, but the last act, new, was the best by far. We read a story whose climax is a celebration made possible by Jesus. And what we did is we concluded that Jesus is our true older brother who sacrifices for family members like you and like me in order to have them return home, be immediately forgiven, and welcomed into the family by their Heavenly Father. Not only that, there's this over-the-top celebration in heaven and on earth. And our story was described in terms of a feast, music, jewelry, uh, finest clothing, and a fatted calf that the whole village could partake in. That's why on earth, when someone comes home, when they trust in Jesus and they're included in the family, I know in my old church, we throw a big baptism party on the beach. As you can see here. So we didn't have a fatted calf. Of course, we had music celebration, shouts of joy, 
some cardboard signs showing that joy, and a sun-drenched saltwater affirmation that a once-dead friend is alive again. And here's one example. That's how it should be. And why, the question is, why can't this moment of constant, constant love, nonstop answers to prayer, pats on the back, highest of highs, continue to last? Why instead does that every, all things have to slow down and get replaced by big doses of pain and suffering? Why can't we just go from grace to glory, from, from new to perfect? Over the next few minutes, I'm going to tell you the answer to that question. I'm going to try to show you the answer. I'm going to try to illustrate it. I'm going to, I'm going to look in God's word for it together. So I first want to talk about this tension we all feel between the new and the perfect. Between trusting our life to Jesus in the first place and then going home to be with him forever. And if you remember nothing else, remember this, that our message in a nutshell that kind of encapsulates this tension is this. Every follower of Jesus lives in a new perfect tension so he or she can emerge as a free lover of God. Let me say that one more time. Every follower of Jesus lives in this new perfect tension so that he or she can emerge from it a free lover of God. Now, some of you hear that term, free lover of God, and you think, Ryan, if you spent too much time down on Hayden Ashbury, living in the 60s or watching too many Austin Powers movies, right? Free love, baby, yeah. Now, I know some, I know some of you are closet Austin Powers fans, even if you're not laughing. Looking at you, Keith. I know you, you probably secretly like that. It's okay. You can admit it. So here's the thing, though. You cannot emerge and be transformed to a free lover of God unless you experience suffering equipped with future hope. You got to be thrown into that future, that crucible of suffering equipped, though, with future hope. When our kids were a little younger, I was sharing with our family this idea that God wants to make us into sort of, uh, sort of free lovers of God. And Mason immediately looked at me funny when I said that to him. He said, Dad, what do you mean by that? And so I replied, I thought about it, I replied, okay, Mason, there was this moment when we first moved to Grand Cayman, Cayman Islands, and your grandmother, your ma'ams, he called them, my mom, she was visiting. And ma'ams asked you a question about what kinds of things you like to do with your dad. And I was in the adjacent room, and I kind of overheard Mason's response. And he said, basically, he likes to spend time with me. I like to spend time with my dad, but I wish he was a little more like my friend's dad, who every time he comes home, he brings with him a Nintendo Wii U, a scooter, or some other type of wonderful gift when he got near him. Now, I was sharing this with Mason this week, and he totally laughed at how silly this sounded. Because, and it sounds silly to him now because he's older. He's an adult. He's matured. We've been through things together, and he actually loves me for me, not because of the things I can give him. For the most part, loves me for me. You, you get the idea. Now, I do, I got to say, give Mason things sometimes, uh, automobile insurance, not to mention liberal access to our refrigerator, for sure. But, but what if I'd given into that comment? In my sort of insecurity in the moment, I heard him say this. And I heard him say, I wish my dad gave me stuff every time he showed up. And I showered him with more gifts. If I had done that, I would have never really known if Mason loved me. Right? But, but time and going through stuff together and maturity, now he loves me for me. And I know that. And it's not just because of the things I can give him, right? 
So turn with me, if you would, to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. New, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. If you're looking for 2 Corinthians 4, it is uh, about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. If you're getting near 1 Corinthians and Galatians, you're getting close. And if you don't have a Bible, please just reach underneath the seat uh, you're sitting in right now and find one. And if you need to, take it home. We'd love for this to be a gift for you if you don't have a Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7, we're going to hear about a formal, former prodigal son named Paul as he describes this tension that he's feeling too between the new, first trusting Jesus, and the perfect, one day being with him forever. He feels this tension too. That's what he's writing about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read this together, starting in verse 7. But we have these treasure, this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is in you, work in you. I hope that you hear throughout these verses that tension, right? We're on the one hand, crushed but not perplexed, driven but not to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, right? We have this Death isn't working us. Life isn't working you. You hear this tension. A follower of Jesus lives with pain and suffering and hardship, but it doesn't totally crush him because of what the Apostle Paul says next. Verses 13 through 15. Since we have this same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe so I spoke. We also believe so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence for it is all for your sake so that his grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of god so jesus is risen from the dead so that one day every follower of his will rise with him will follow in his footsteps so because of this paul can say that despite all the suffering he's enduring this verses 16 through 18 so we do not lose heart Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, in other words, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And now here's where this tension, this tension of living between these two ages of the new and the perfect really gets its full description, continuing on in chapter 5, verses 1, 1 and following. For we know that if this tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, that is our body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we might not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us a spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. So this age is filled with pain. 
There's no doubt about it, right? The droughts, diseases, busted up relationships, cruelty that we never thought possible, and some of it coming from within us. And yet, but we can get through it. We can get through it by focusing on a, on a future hope, which allows us to do something absolutely remarkable in this life. Read with me in verses 10, 9 and 10 as we go forward. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, all of us, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, body, whether good or evil. So life becomes about totally pleasing our Father. We, we don't want to just please him for what he does for us. We want to please him for who he is, for his sake, for that relationship. Because we want to, we want to someday hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And by the way, that's what verse 10 is all about. Not a, not a judgment of condemnation or salvation, but one of commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, this isn't the first time. God helps someone in the Bible become a totally free lover, the most famous of which is a man named Job, a righteous man if there ever was one. Satan, the devil, approaches God one day as, as an effect, of course this guy Job loves you. He, he, he has seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, and on top of that, he's earned the title greatest of all people in the East. This is before there was Time Magazine's most influential people. Job had already earned the greatest of all the people in the East, and everyone knew it by word of mouth. And so Satan essentially says, hey, take all this away, and Job will not keep loving you. In other words, he accuses Job of loving God with a mercenary love. Now, God knows that Satan's ultimately wrong, but that he's pent ultimately right, that Job isn't yet what he could be. His love certainly is not. So he allows Job to suffer. Why does he do this? C.S. Lewis, uh, 20th century British writer, wrote this wonderful little book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a series of letters in which Lewis imagines a senior devil writing a junior devil, giving him advice on how to tempt followers of Jesus. Listen to what he says about the enemy, who is in this case God. He says this, The enemy allows disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted by nursery stories and the Odyssey really buckles down to learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and then begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks a transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has this curious fantasy of making all these disgusting human vermin into what he calls free lovers. Desiring their freedom, he refuses to carry them by their mere affections, habits, gifts, and those sorts of things. See, Job faces the pain, adversary, uh, suffering, total loss. I mean, he loses everything in his life but his actual heartbeat. And the turning point comes for him for him in the middle of chapter 13, if you were to read that book, in the middle of, of summarize everything that had been stripped from him, his extended family can no longer visit, his friends don't check in, his wife feels like a stranger, his kids gossiping about him, yet he's sick. Boils are covering him, and yet he sticks with God. And he says in Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, 
yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you look at these verses, we hear the two main tools God uses to make us into free lovers. Present suffering and future hope. We hear that in these verses. Job continually looks forward to the day he will see God face to face. And that is what helps him. Right? If God had too, too soon restored Job uh, the comfort, the health, the savings account, the family, he would have thanked God, but he would have thanked him ultimately for all the tangible blessings, right? But instead, through suffering, Job gets back something far more valuable. That is desire to see and be with God for God's sake, not for the things that God could give him. See, so there's a present suffering which causes us to prize a super hope, a future hope. And that produces an internal change, a change that lasts. That's exactly the same story, by the way, that God works in the Apostle Paul. He produces versa, present suffering in his life. It's documented pretty well, and it's pretty worth it's worth noting that the, the, the letter 2 Corinthians is Paul's most vulnerable letter that he writes in the entire New Testament. Nobody wrote more than the Apostle Paul did in the New Testament. And this is his most vulnerable letter. He talked freely about pain and adversity more in this letter than any other. Now, people, as we know, can respond very differently to our pain. Some folks can dismiss pain as if they didn't hear it at all. Some folks can minimize pain. They'll say something like, I know what you're going through is bad, but at least you're not a refugee fleeing Syria. As if that's supposed to make us feel better. Even worse, folks can try to fix our pain, right? Offering all kinds of thumping, some things to read or some things they, they've heard about that could help us in our situation. But worst of all, the very worst of all, is after opening up, people can use exposed pain against us. And this very worst is what happens to Paul. He writes a letter that we don't have any longer. Never makes the New Testament. But Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians as a, quote, tearful letter. As he writes it, many of the, the people in the church accuse Paul of being kind of wishy-washy and more than a little weak. And yet, he writes another letter with tears and in weakness. Still puts himself out there. How can he do this? Why would he do this? Well, Paul's hope wasn't in gaining people's sympathy. His hope was in something future and unseen. Verse 14, right? Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise will raise us also with Jesus. Verses 17 through 18, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a future glory that's going to far outweigh what we're going through right now. Chapter 5, verse 2, in this present bodily tent, we grow, we groan, longing to put on a heavenly dwelling. What is mortal now might be swallowed up by future life. Chapter 5, verse 8, Apostle Paul is clearly thinking about being at home with the Lord. In other words, in his trouble, he's thinking about this future hope, which he can hold on to, and he can be vulnerable because his hope is indestructible. And we see in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 5 that meditating on this hope produces a longing to please God, to only care about God's approval, not how other people will respond to him seeming maybe weak and vulnerable. So let's review. Who's behind our adversity and pain? 
as evidence in Job's story, we actually don't know the answer to that, whether it's God or the devil. But even if it is the devil, it's God's devil. Nothing happens outside of God's supervision, which might cause many of us to wonder, why then does this not get easier in this life? If God loves me and he's with me and everything's under his sovereign plan and supervision, why doesn't he give me all the, the tangible felt blessings I experienced when I first began walking with him? And the answer is because he's refining your love. He's taking you from being a mercenary lover to a free lover. Loving God, not for the gifts he gives us, but loving God for who he is, just like Jesus loved his father. How is he doing this? How is he transforming our hearts to become free lovers of God? Three key words we see in verse 18. As we look. Those are the three key words. As we look. Not to the things that are seen, but to the unseen things, the eternal things. It happens as we look to a future hope, which leads us to my role in this tension of God's story. My role in this tension of God's story, it's been pretty clear so far, to grow from a mercenary lover into a free lover. Before I go any further, let me make clear, absolutely you should love God for the forgiveness he offers us time and again, for his frequent answers to prayer, to his felt presence as we sing praises for him. These things should draw us to him. But think of it this way. Let's say you fall in love with someone and you first understandably do so because of that person's, we'll call them assets, right? They make you laugh. They make you smile. They help you feel better about yourself. Uh, they're attractive. They have common interests to you. You have certain connections together. But over time, what begins to happen is you begin to love that person for themselves alone. In fact, some of the assets fade away. Maybe their attractiveness, et cetera, but you don't mind. Now, both of these loves are natural. We just want to grow from one to the other. You would never want to continue to love that person only for the things they can bring into the relationship. You want to love them for them. And the same is true of our relationship with God. He wants us to love him for him. So how, how do we grow? Well, I want to offer what I hope are three practical suggestions. Just suggestions to consider. And the first is this, to, to walk through, don't run from suffering. Our generation is abnormal when it comes to meaningfully integrating suffering into the fabric of our lives, even seeing suffering as a valuable addition to our lives. I want to tell you about a, a gentleman named, named Dr. Paul Brand. He's a well-regarded, in fact, world-renowned orthopedic sur uh, surgeon in his uh, treatment of leprosy patients. And he spent the first part of his career in the East, in India, and the last part of his career in the West, in the United States. And here were some of his observations about being uh, caring for people in both parts of the world. He said this, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients live at a greater comfort level than I, any I'd previously treated, but they seem far less equipped to handle suffering, far more traumatized by it. Probably doesn't surprise us, right? Ours is the ibuprofen generation of something Hurts try to alleviate it at all costs. Millions of dollars have been spent developing materials for softer playground surface so that you can absorb falls from monkey bars, right? Participation trophies have become the same size as first place trophies so that little Timmy doesn't feel inferior, even though he knows that he lost eight to nothing, right? Employees are rather are rarely fired or demoted. They're, they're reallocated, realigned, repurposed, where there's a problem. There's a pill. It's also why many of us 
aren't great listeners to people in pain. We want to get them immediately. We want to get them immediately out of pain because we don't want to have to sit in it with them. It produces all kinds of anxiety in us because we just want to get away from it at all costs. There's something going on in us when someone else is hurting. And so we can't listen sometimes. Every other documented society in history has a way of meaningfully integrating pain into life. It's only in the, really in the last hundred years that we viewed pain, uh, sorrow, suffering as, as a pure interruption to life. In other words, we are the weird ones, not people who went before us, even though we see ourselves as so advanced. And the, the biblical view also has a purpose, right? That in between the new and the perfect, God is using suffering to enlarge our love for him. He wants to enlarge your love for him. So it's, it, because it's not a threat, you can walk through it rather than run. You can pay attention to your pain and the unmet needs beneath that pain that, that it reveals. And, in re and realize this is part of life. This is part of God's plan, as hard as it is. Second way we can grow is enter a change recognition community. Paul says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. In other words, there's, there's this gradual change. Well, how do you recognize change? How, how can you tell if your love is truly growing and being enlarged? I find that if, I, if I'm changing, I, I'm not noticing it. It's because of other people in my life telling me, hey, Ryan, you're changing. They're, they're holding me accountable. They're pointing out transformation in my life. So enter into a change recognition community. And of course, at this point, then I'm going to promote waiting rooms, which begins September 14th. A massive initiative for our whole church to get together, first all together, eating together, then breaking down into smaller groups, praying together, encouraging one another, talking together, and having opportunities to say, hey, I see you changing. I see you growing in your life. Third suggestion is to establish what I'll call eternal rhythms. Establish eternal rhythms. Our role in growing, remember, are those three words, as we look. As we look not to the things that are passing away, but the things that are eternal. So where, what are some eternal rhythms I'm talking about here? Uh, one is take time to visually imagine your resurrection. To be in the presence of Jesus, finally. A new body, free of pain. Of, free of weariness, free of injury, finally. Resurrected with others. Imagine that moment with, with followers of Jesus who previously helped us, but also previously hurt us and been completely perfected. You will rise also perfected in his presence. It is worthwhile discipline to just imagine that regularly in your life. Secondly, write out what you hope Jesus says to you. Verse 10, I mentioned, isn't a judgment of condemnation, but commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due for what we've done here on this earth. Write out what you hope that Jesus says to you on that day. I wrote down this week, and some of the things I imagine him saying, I hope he will say, is that Ryan, well done in caring for Katie when she's been in pain. And helping to shepherd your, your boys through hard times. Loving the city. Teaching the good news faithfully. And being a friend to a chosen few. And even as I wrote this down, I just felt my affection for Jesus grow. 
or wanting to please him grow also. A third, what I'll call eternal rhythm, is to remind yourself that every pleasure is a hint of perfection to come. Every pleasure is a hint of perfection to come. I'll talk about this more next week, but every time you bite into that steak, every sip of wine, every redwood, every golden field, every, every granite cliff, you can say, this is amazing, and, even, and yet the best is still yet to come. We traveled this past July back east to see some family. We started in South Carolina and traveled northward until eventually we, we, we crossed the North Carolina border. As we crossed the border, I queued up my playlist from Spotify to James Taylor's Carolina on my mind. In my mind, I'm going to Carolina. Can't you see the sunshine? Can't you just hear the moonshine? Every, I cry whenever I hear it. I tear up. Because I remember growing up there, football games in our big field, friendships, forged at a summer camp where I trusted Jesus. The evening, I even proposed to my wife, Katie. I tear up because I know I can't get those moments back. Right? They are ear retrievable. And that sense of irretrievability of our, those best moments of life is like a kind of death. The older we get, the more we realize that certain moments are truly irretrievable. They're gone. And that can really suck the joy out of our lives. But here's where the resurrection offers something unique. Even religions that promise a certain kind of spiritual future or bliss only offer a consolation of what you've lost. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ offers you restoration of what you've lost. Not consolation, restoration. You don't just get your body back. You get the body you've always wanted but never had. You don't just get your life back. You get the life you've always wanted and never had. And when you meditate on that every day, you'll not only be able to endure the tension of God's story, but you'll also get to grow, be transformed into a free lover of him. Not loving him for the things he gives you, but loving him for his sake. Let's pray. Father, this is the part of the story that we are actually living in as followers of Jesus. This tension between the new and the perfect, which we wake up every day wishing would be full of tangible blessings and felt your felt presence and, and just all kinds of experienced goodness, but instead so often is filled with large doses of pain and suffering. We wonder why. Why can't it be like it used to be? Why can't it be like those best days? We thank you for your word this morning to remind us of why. Why we experience some of these large doses of pain and suffering. So that we'll begin to love God, not just for the things he gives us, but for him himself. Not, as a, merc not a mercenary love, but a free lover of God. And the way we can do this is by meditating on, these on a future hope. Just imagining the day will one day rise from the dead. Right? These eternal rhythms of of just just considering uh, delighting in things now because of the way they point to the future the writing out the hope of what Jesus will one day say to us even just walking through our suffering with this hope or not running from it but recognizing the hard things we're going through now are, are producing in us an eternal weight of glory as we look 
It's what we will one day be because of Jesus Christ. We declare all this and hope in all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.